This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about other aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For additional book recommendations, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. There is a Facebook group where we all chat books, and we are currently reading two advanced copies of books and chatting with the authors pre-publication. Thanks to those that already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Bryn Turnbull about The Last Grand Duchess. Bryn is a writer of historical fiction with a penchant for fountain pens. Equipped with a Master's of Letters in Creative Writing from the University of St. Andrews, a Master's of Professional Communication from Ryerson University, and a Bachelor's Degree in English Literature from McGill University. Bryn focuses on finding stories of women lost within the cracks of the historical record. She lives in Toronto. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Bryn. How are you today? Hi, Cindy. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm so glad you're here. I loved when we spoke last time, and I am very excited to speak again today. Well, likewise. So why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about The Last Grand Duchess for those that won't have read it yet. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, The Last Grand Duchess, it's my uh, my sophomore book, um, and it uh, came out February 8th, and it is about the fall of the Romanov Empire, as told by Nicholas and Alexander's eldest daughter, Olga. Uh, So it goes into her war work, where she worked as a Red Cross nurse during the First World War, into her parents' relationship with uh, the mystic Grigory Rasputin, and also Olga's romantic life, her personal life, and all of the yearnings that she had to be more than just her title as a Grand Duchess of Russia. So uh, it's sort of one of the sweeping, all-encompassing kind of stories about this about this young woman whose life was tragically cut uh, far too short. How did you decide to write about her? So for me, the Romanov story has always been interesting. Like I've always, always gravitated towards the Romanovs and towards you know the downfall of this incredibly powerful family. But I found most of the treatments of this story kind of went through one of two avenues. It was either through Nicholas and Alexandra and their relationship with Rasputin, or it was through Anastasia, the youngest daughter of Nicholas and Alexandra, who is really well known in popular culture, obviously, 
because of the the animated movie, the animated Fox movie, but also because she had all of these pretenders who, after the Romanovs' deaths, came forward claiming to be her. And historically, we know that that Anastasia did die on in July 1918. However, this notion of the imposters has always stuck around. And, you know, th- those are two great avenues or two really interesting and fruitful um, avenues for a fiction writer to access this story. But for me, I really was intrigued by this young woman, Olga, who was always viewed kind of on the periphery of either her parents' story or her sister's story, and really not viewed on her own merits. And this is something that really occurred with all four of the sisters, well, three of the sisters, Anastasia excluded, who were all kind of viewed as this monolithic group. Um, They were actually known as Atma in their lives, which was an acronym formed by all of their first names. And to me, it was, okay, how do we break apart that acronym? How do we look at these individual women, who they were? And they were women. They were young women when they died. They weren't children. So Olga really stood out to me because as the oldest of the sisters, she was the most politically aware of her siblings. She actually, uh, when Rasputin died, she, she said, I understand why they did it. That to me was very interesting. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, she had this war work. She worked as a Red Cross nurse. And, and it wasn't just being there for the photo op. It was actually assisting in operations and, you know, binding up men's wounds, uh, soldiers' wounds. And so that really spoke to me as like, okay, who, who was this woman and who was she beyond just the gloss of being a grand duchess? And when I kind of dove in, I found, okay, she's incredibly passionate. She's this incredibly dynamic force. And so, so interesting. Um, and as I said, someone whose life was cut far too short, I think she had so much she could have offered to the world if she'd, if she'd lived longer. It was really interesting to me because I've always been fascinated with Anastasia and the pretenders. Like that part of the story to me has always been so intriguing. And obviously, we do know that she did die. And so all the pretenders were that pretenders. But I realized as I was reading your book, that I really didn't know all that much about the family and what, I mean, I knew what generally led up to their demise. But, you know, all of the different components and how it's sort of built, I really had more read about the people who pretended to be Anastasia later. So I learned so much from your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it is It is one of those interesting things because all of these stories that focus on the pretenders focus on just that. It's the pretenders. It's not about the family. It's not about who these people were. And it's really not even about who Anastasia was. You know, it's all these people who claim to be her and their stories are fascinating. I mean, the story of Anna Anderson is unbelievably interesting, but it's not the story of the family. And for me, looking at that story and looking at, okay, well, what led to the downfall? What led to, you know, what led to the country becoming so fed up, so desperate that they overthrew this family in such a brutal way? That, that to me was just absolutely fascinating. It's sort of one of those put a frog in a pot of boiling water situations and and see what happens to lead up to this moment that, that is remembered so tragically and so graphically. Absolutely. Well, you must have done an incredible amount of research. What was that like? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, the Romanovs are the most documented family in history. So there's so much to go on in terms of research. And there are so many valuable historical resources out there, including the diaries of the family themselves. So uh, I was able to access Olga's diary and look into her recollections of the days, kind of of what was happening. And a lot of it is told for posterity. Uh, you can tell that she's writing for an audience, but you get these little moments of, of her personal life. You get the little code words that she used to talk about 
her romantic involvements, things like that, which just, I mean, it's, it's absolute catnip for a, um, for a historical fiction author to find things like that. Uh, but also, this was the advent of cinema and of newsreels as a form of media. Alexei was actually known to be quite an enthusiast of Pathé newsreels, uh, which was something that they watched um, as a family during the imprisonment. They just watched newsreels all the time. And so we've got, uh, you know, we've got them on film, we've got their movement, we've got, uh, you know, Nicholas's voice, we have all of these wonderful historical resources to look at. You know, one of the things I'd, I'd hoped to do in terms of research was go to Russia to visit the locations to visit the palaces. But, you know, a little thing called COVID-19 came along and, and scuppered those plans. But uh, I'm so fortunate to have had the internet and to have, have had the, um, you know, YouTube videos put up by people who'd gone to Alexander Palace, who'd gone to the Winter Palace and, and put their travelogues up online. That, was a, that really was an invaluable resource in the absence of being able to go there myself. Are the last couple of places they spent time still around? Some of them are. Uh, Freedom House in Tobolsk is still there, uh, the governor's mansion. The uh, House of Special Purpose, Ipatiev House, is no longer there. That was destroyed, I believe, in the 1970s. That was torn down. And there's a, uh, there's a church there now, the Cathedral of the Spilled Blood. And that is now on the site where the Romanovs lost their lives. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the family was canonized. Oh, they were? Okay. They were. Yes. I guess I had forgotten that. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Well, I assume it was really challenging to tackle a story where most everyone is going to know how it ends before they ever pick up the book. How did you approach writing this book as a result? Yeah. So, um, you know, I always knew how the book was going to end. I always knew what the last chapter of the book was going to be. And that really did inform the the writing of it, you know, knowing what the ending was going to be, knowing where these characters were headed kind of allowed me to, to pull back a little bit and say, okay, well, what, what, are, what are the important aspects of Olga's story? And it's not always, it's not just what's leading up to this moment that we know is coming. It's what are all the little moments in between? What are all of the, you know, uh, what are all of the intangibles? What was her day, day-to-day life? What were her thoughts, her dreams, her feelings that had nothing to do with the political aspect of what's going on around her? That to me was as important as portraying the politics of it. Uh, and portraying, you know, the demise of the family. So, so that was, it was an interesting challenge for sure. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, the book has a, a sort of a dual timeline aspect to it, where we're looking at pre-revolution and post-revolution, uh, or pre-abdication, post-abdication, I should say. And that's one of the reasons why I used that was really to kind of get at the heart of, of Olga personally, as well as politically. That was actually my next question about toggling back and forth in time, but in a small <laughs> window of time. And whether it had always started that way or whether you added that in as you were writing and trying to figure out the best way to portray the story. Yeah, that that kind of evolved. Um, I, I don't think that that was where I started. I initially started the book a lot earlier, actually, you know, when, when Olga was a lot younger. And really what it came down to in terms of the writing was what what is it that I'm trying to portray here? And as I said, I'm trying to portray the personal, but also the political and using that back and forth framework really kind of allowed me to tap into those two sides of Olga in a way that I felt was allowed me to kind of get to the heart of her. You know, in, in the pre-abdication timeline, we're looking at Olga's relationships. We're looking at, we're looking at who she wanted to be. We're looking at a w- young woman in the process of becoming an adult in, in the process of, of kind of self-actualization. And in the post-abdication timeline, we're looking at a young woman who has no idea, who's had all of those foundations ripped away from her. 
And that that kind of juxtaposition was so interesting. You know, you've got a woman who knew what was going to happen, who kind of had her life built out, whether or not it was the life she wanted, you know, read the book and kind of figure that one out yourself. But um, to to look at this woman who had everything kind of planned for her, and then have all that taken away, all that uncertainty, I thought was really interesting. Uh, and particularly writing that during the pandemic, that uncertainty, uh, I think I got a, I got a better appreciation for for that sense of uncertainty, I think. Well, and a similar experience of being locked down, of course, yours was self-imposed versus having guards <laughs> there and everything. But still, the idea of not really being able to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I live in Toronto, and uh, we went through, I think, I think we went through the most sustained lockdown uh, in the world. It was like eight months of full lockdown. And yeah, it was nothing like what the Romanovs went through, but it, it certainly gave me an appreciation for the uncertainty and the monotony of what their days must have been like. Absolutely. Well, what surprised you the most about writing the book? I will tell you what surprised me the most about reading it was one, how sheltered the Romanov children were. Like, I didn't mm -hmm. really know that aspect of it, that they really were kept so sheltered and didn't have a very good sense for what was happening elsewhere and even what was happening in Russia. And then how out of touch Nicholas and Alexandra were. Like, both of those things to me were big surprises. But what surprised you the most? Yeah, I mean, the the, the lack of touch that the family had with Russia was really quite a surprise. You know, you go back, you look at the historical record, you look at nonfiction books written about these uh, these people, and that really does hit home. This the level of sort of blindness that Nicholas and Alexandra had. They they believed that they were ruling an antiquated version of Russia. They kind of had allowed the industrial revolution and modernization to pass them by. They thought that they were ruling over peasants toiling in fields, not you know, not modern Russians working in a you know, working in cities, working in factories, and, and, you know, dealing with all of the social ills and social deprivations that come from that. So that that definitely surprised me. I think the other thing that really kind of caught my eye was how compassionate Olga was, despite the fact that her family really didn't have that tap, uh, you know, didn't have their fingers on the pulse of, of their people. Olga wanted that she wanted to know what the world was around her. And, and I think, you know, to give her family credit, I think that they, they tried not very hard, but, but yeah, that, that really did surprise me. I think part of the problem that they had was once Alexei was born, they were really trying to keep him out of the limelight and, and play down his illness and not have a lot of questions about that. So that ended up isolating them a lot further. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in Alexandria in particular, you've got a woman whose public persona as, uh, you know, as the Empress of Russia is in complete contradiction to her personal role as, as a mother and as the mother of a, of a very, very ill child. Those two things were really the struggle that the Romanovs dealt with throughout the entirety of Alexei's life. He was the heir, he was the Tsarevich, and they knew that this disease could, you know, could end the monarchy. And that, that level of desperation, I think, is, is something that we shouldn't consider lightly, that level of um, desperation that they must have felt looking at that whole situation. Absolutely. And the other thing I had never pondered was how much that impacted his sisters, you know, because people knew there was something going on, knew there was a disease there, but things were being covered up. 
And so they weren't wanting to take a gamble on the sisters as well. That was just something I'd never thought about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there's a character in the book, Prince Carol of, uh, of Romania, and he really kind of exemplifies that exact, that exact uncertainty and showcase kind of how the, the prospects for these daughters, they should have been political players on, you know, on the European stage. Everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew that, that they had, as Carol calls it, tainted bloodlines because so many Royal families at the time had it. It came down through Queen Victoria, uh, who was a carrier of hemophilia. And so while the average person on the street wouldn't have known the disease that Alexei had, um, certainly the other kind of crowned heads of Europe would. And that absolutely changed how the daughters were, uh, were perceived. And probably then ended up leading to their demise as well, because if they had been able to marry and get out of there, then they would not have been there at the end. Yeah. So there, there's actually, I, I talk about it in the, um, in the author's note to the book, but Prince Carol, despite the fact that he and Olga really loathed each other on site, he actually did propose marriage to Maria just quietly. She, he, he pulled Nicholas aside and asked for Maria's hand and Nicholas kind of laughed him off. Um, and this was very late, uh, very late in the day. And he kind of brushed off the proposal and there, that does kind of raise an interesting what if moment in the history books. What if Maria had married Carol? What if she had become, you know, what if she had joined another family? Would the Romanovs have been really cast, cast down so brutally the way that they had if Maria had survived? Or would Maria have become a rallying point for, uh, for the white Russians in the years following the revolution? It's always so interesting to look back at those tipping points or mm-hmm. changes or choices and wonder what would have happened if it had gone a different way. Oh, absolutely. Well, Alexandra's reliance on Rasputin has always baffled me, but I thought you did a wonderful job of providing an explanation for potentially why Rasputin was able to, I don't know what you want to say, wiggle his way in and create such trouble. You know, Rasputin was such an interesting character because you've got the popular image of him as this evil, scheming, dark figure behind the throne. And, and he was very much seen that way um, in his time. But, you know, was he purely evil? Was he doing what he was doing in order to gain power? Not necessarily. And, and I mean, you know, the history books kind of don't hold that up. He was a priest. He was, you know, a wandering holy man. And, and he did have, he undeniably had some influence and some impact that helped Alexei recover after these bouts of hemophilia. You know, you you look on you look back at what Rasputin was espousing to the emperor and empress, and it was really kind of rote religious stuff. It was take care of the poor amongst your people, take care of your neighbor, remember the little guy. And and so his image has been so warped throughout history and and even during the time itself that um you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting. I don't necessarily think he was an evil guy. Do I think he was a good force for the, for the imperial family? Probably not. And I think that he certainly played a part or his image played a part in their downfall. But I didn't want to portray him as, as uniformly evil. I, I mean, I don't think that that's fair on any historical figure to just look at, you know, look at the downside. You have to, you have to give people a chance to, to kind of have their say, I think, if you're writing a, a real historical figure. Oh, absolutely. And I think also his personal life really contributed to his reputation as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So he wasn't really practicing what he preached. 
So I think that makes a difference too. But yes, he definitely seemed to help the Romanovs at one point, but then it seems like over time, probably just one more nail in their coffin, literally. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what do you hope readers take away from the book? One of the things that that really stood out for me in writing this book is I wasn't trying to write about who they were politically. And I wasn't trying to write about them as martyrs. I'm writing about this family as a family and families have their virtues and they've got their flaws. And, and for me, that, that was so important. These, uh, this whole family has just been held up as symbols for so long. It's symbols of Imperial Russia, symbols of a decadent, you know, a decadent monarchy that had long outlived its usefulness, um, symbols of oppression and as martyrs, as, you know, as victims of the, of the revolution, but they were just a family. And Nicholas in particular, all he really cared about was being a father. He didn't really, you know, he was very ill-suited to his role as czar. And, and I think that for me, that was what I was trying to get to was I was trying to get to the heart of who this family was and who Olga was as an individual, not as a grand duchess, not as a political player, not as a martyr, but as, as a woman, first and foremost. You, you really build the sense of dread, but like from Olga's perspective, you know, she knows, okay, things aren't going well and they keep getting moved and things are getting worse and worse, but what it would be like to actually be living that. I felt you did a wonderful job of getting that across. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. She was certainly the most politically aware of her sisters and, and in contemporary accounts uh, from Romanov retainers, from the tutors, Sidney Gibbs and Pierre Gilliard, uh, you really do get a sense in their accounts that Olga was the one who knew what was happening and she knew what was coming. She becomes increasingly morose during their imprisonment. And she's the one who kind of can see the writing on the wall. And I, I really wanted to portray that in a truthful way. Yes. Well, you did that very well. Thank you. Thank you very much. What about the title and the cover? How did they both come about? Oh, well, I, I adore my cover. When I saw it, so, so I mean, there's a very deliberate nod in the cover to the, la, uh, to the woman before Wallace. And so when I saw this one, I just thought, oh, it's perfect. Because you put the two books together and they look like sisters, which I, which I love. It's, you know, it was, it was an interesting process because they sent it to me and I thought, oh, that's amazing. And, I, and for me, the best part of the cover is the juxtaposition of, of the red and the purple. Uh, because purple, is, as you may know, is, you know, it's a symbol of royalty. It's a royal color and red is the color of the revolution. And so to have that, that tension and that dynamism portrayed on the cover, I think is, is so cool. <laughs> I had recognized the purple as royalty, but I hadn't thought about the red and the revolution. So I think they just look really good together. But now I'll look at that and I'll think about it every time. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that tension between the two. Me too. What about the title? The title. So The Last Grand Duchess. You know, I, I didn't really have a title when I was working on this book. You know, I jokingly called it the the political awakening of Olga Romanov, just as I was writing it, because so much of it is about seeing how her parents really kind of failed as as leaders, as monarchs. But the last Grand Duchess, I mean, technically, the last Grand Duchess would have been Olga Alexandrovna, uh, Olga's aunt, who is a character in this book. But um, it just it was such a powerful title, The Last Grand Duchess. Um, it just felt powerful. It felt it felt very fitting for the last Romanovs to, you know, to have it as the last Grand Duchess. I agree. And then it makes you want to know exactly who the last Grand Duchess is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you'd like to share with me? I am indeed. Uh, I'm working on book three. Uh, it's a World War II, more of a thriller. 
It's about art theft and forgery in occupied France. Okay, that sounds wonderful. I'm always completely (laughs) fascinated with anything related to art, but particularly art during World War II when there were so many things happening and the Nazis were trying to take different famous paintings or actually get rid of some paintings using it as currency. People later trying to get their artwork back. So oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and it, you know, it deals with the censorship of art as well. Um, you know, the Nazis taking taking whole art movements and and deeming them degenerate. So, which which I just I find absolutely fascinating. It totally is. And the funny part of that, at least for some of it, is they declared them degenerate, but then they sold them or held on to them. But I guess it's a little bit like the book banning today. It's just an interesting topic. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you have any idea when that one will come out? Uh, I believe it's slated for 2024. Okay, good. Well, that's nice. Gives you plenty of time to work on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a daunting prospect. I'm, you know, I'm definitely doing a crash, crash course in art right now. So I'm, I'm up to my elbows in oil paint. <laughs> There's probably a lot of research involved in that story as well. Oh, yeah. But I love research. It's my favorite part of the process. Oh, absolutely. And I always love hearing about it because I just feel like it's got to be so fascinating, all these different rabbit holes you go down. <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? So uh, I've read a couple books that I just adored. Uh, one of them, I believe it comes out in May. It's called Bloomsbury Girls by Natalie Jenner. I just, I, I loved it. It's just a perfect, perfect Sunday read, curl up with a coffee in your favorite chair. The other one that I read and adored was Letters Across the Sea by Genevieve Graham which takes place in Toronto during the 1930s, 1940s. And then uh, one book that I have on my TBR pile, which I've not yet gotten to, but I'm quite looking forward to, is called The Lost Chapter by Caroline Bishop. Well, all three of those sound wonderful. And in fact, I've read Bloomsbury Girls and I loved it as well. Such a wonderful book. Wasn't it amazing? Yes. It's so lovely. It's such a good book. I mean, I I love everything Natalie Jenner does, but uh, this one is, it's a special book for sure. I was just going to say the same thing. I love the Jane Austen <laughs> Society as well, but I just thought this was wonderful. I think anything set in a bookstore, how can you not love it? Right? Gotta love a bookstore book. You do. Well, Bren, I'm so happy you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today to talk with me about The Last Grand Duchess. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Cindy. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content, tell all of your friends about the podcast, and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.